Lord, we ask now that you would uh, continue to let us behold the glory of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are on your throne, and we commit our way into you. Lord, uh, take the word of God now and make application as only you can do and as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, December the 21st, 2012 is very near, and there is uh, much speculation and a lot of uh, money being made out of the Mayan end of civilization as we know it. Some of you may know that the Mayan calendar is put together in 300 and I think 50 years segments, and when the Mayan calendar was put together somewhere between 300 and 900 A.D., the people who put the calendar together said that the world would end at the end of the last cycle, the 13th cycle, I think it was. So it's going to end supposedly on December the 21st, 2012. There's been a lot of noise made about that, a lot of money made about that. The Mayan c- culture is now what well, we have southern New Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Belize. And this summer, there's been a tourist inrush into that area, looking at all things Mayan and preparing for the end of the world as we know it on December the 21st, 2012. And there's one man in California that has jumped on this. His name is Robert Vincino, and he's peddling spaces in his, quote, private network of impervious underground shelters, survival shelters, for $10,000 a head. And he says this in his brochure, what if the prophecies are true? says, which side of the door do you want to be on? And so there's been a boom in DVDs and books and magazines, and there are hundreds of titles about the end of the world as we know it via the Mayan culture. Well, that's always been talked about. And really the, the issue we're going to address this morning is a question that was asked by the Apostle Paul at the church at Thessalonica. We saw one question last week, what about brotherly love? This week the question is, well, what about those who have died before the coming of the Lord. They were expecting Christ to come at any hour, any moment. He said, well, what about those who have died before the coming of the Lord? Do they have any hope? The t- Paul, had, I think, had taught them, but in, in their grief and in their sorrow, they had become overwhelmed with questions. Well, what about those who die before the Lord comes again? And Paul says very clearly in this passage, he says, I, I tell you that Verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And when you look at this, this passage in life, to, to me, there are ex- extremes. One extreme is to be overly concerned with dates and times. And Christ says very clearly in Matthew 24, don't be concerned about dates and times. The, the other extreme is to just scoff and say, well, forget all this stuff. Where's the Lord that is coming? And, and really, I think one of the most cogent, gracious, on-target statements is in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, 
uh, Article 3, listen to this statement. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So Paul is saying here, be ready. Now, when you come to this text, you know, some people say, well, does this talk, text talk about a certain, you know, pre-tribulational millennial reign, the rapture of the church? And let me just read a statement here from a commentary. Listen. If we understand that this passage is an attempt to comfort the grieving, we shall find it complete. On the other hand, if we approach the passage expecting an eschatological treatise, we will experience frustration. This is not a passage about the second coming of Christ primarily, but a passage about grieving for the dead. I agree. And that's where we're going to go this morning. We're talking about what, what this passage talks about regarding those who are overwhelmed with grief. And so Paul starts off out of the blocks. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says this. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant or ill-informed about those who fall asleep or die or to grieve, which means to be overwhelmed with grief, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Paul says, we don't want you to, to be uninformed. It's the same word that's used, for example, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, when Paul is pleading with the church to forgive the brother who's been in sexual sin, but who's repented. He says, don't be too harsh with the guy. He says, verse 11, he says, I say this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not ignorant or unaware or in the dark about his schemes. So Paul uses the same word. I don't want you people who have buried loved ones, who have lost loved ones, who see loved ones whose bodies are being ravished by disease and who will soon die. I don't want you guys to be overwhelmed or pushed over the edge in your distress and, and, and to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. It says, because we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. So, so we want you to be informed that when the Lord comes, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we'll, we'll go with him in the air. He'll bring with him the souls of men and women who have died in the Lord, and it's going to be a glorious day. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And, and so don't be overwhelmed. And don't live with no foundation of expectation. There was a, a popular inscription that was put on the tombs of many people in the day of the New Testament who were, had no foundation for hope. And this is what the inscription on, the, on, on the, the tomb said. I was not, period. I was, period. I am not, period. I care not. That's it. 
No hope, no foundation for hope. The story goes that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, would walk in the sun, on Sunday afternoons on the Lord's Day. He would li- like to walk through the English countryside. He was walking with a friend, and they just were going through a graveyard, which is a wonderful thing to do, really, to go through the graveyard. I often go through graveyards and read what is put on the tombstones and, and read the years and, and read how short life is. And just a reminder, one day I'll be like that. And somebody had very, in a very cheeky fashion, had inscribed on their tombstone, here I lie dressed up with nowhere to go. And Lewis said, I can promise you he wishes that that were true. Yeah, but it's not. I, I, I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. Oh, yeah. And, and so in, in, this, in, in this whole issue, he says, he says you know, I, I don't want you to, to be ignorant and therefore to be, to be overwhelmed with grief. Like, like, like men without Christ who have no hope. He says, I don't want you to grieve like those who, who have no hope. This painting by a man named Munch, painted in 1895, is called The Scream. He says that he was on a bridge in Oslo, and he said, as he was on this bridge, that, that the whole world as he knew it just gave way beneath his feet in his own experience. And so he did this painting. S- some people have said that, that the bridge is very close to an insane asylum, and this man's sister was in that asylum. He may have heard the screams of the people from the asylum and thought, I thought, was that my sister? This painting was recently sold at a public auction and, and received the, by an anonymous buyer. I'm, I'm glad he's anonymous. By an anonymous buyer for the highest bid ever paid for painting. This painting sold for a little less than $120 million. The screen. But it, it's become, in many circles, kind of the, the poster statement for extreme, abject existentialism. No hope. No hope. Paul says, I, I don't want you guys to be overwhelmed. I don't want you to live at that zip code. Now, just did a little diagram here. See, on, on one end is to be overwhelmed with grief. Just to be, I, I am, I was not, oh, I am not, I was, I am not, I care not. Just, now on, on the other end is, is, is stoicism. You just keep a stiff upper lip. And I, let me just say this, in my, my way of thinking, the first cousin, very close first cousin, to Stoicism are certain, certain aspects of Christian ultra-mysticism that, that, that basically says that I'm going through a hard time, but it's no big deal. If somebody dies and I love them, they're in heaven. Paul says here, we, we grieve. Listen, folks, we grieve. When we lose loved ones. But not like those who have no hope. So just be very careful about People always say to me frequently, because I've been doing this for a while, how do we respond to people who have buried a child or a spouse or a loved one? How do we respond? And I'll never forget this. I was a sophomore in college, a new believer. I went... And, and during the summer, a guy that I knew fairly well, we were in a Bible study together. His mom, at, at, in the early 40s, died of cancer. And it was like, like that, boom. It was, it, was, it was quick. So I heard about it, and I went to his room. I knocked on his door, and I went in. I said, Dan, I'm so sorry. 
I was young. I didn't know what to say. I said, I'm so sorry to hear about your mama. And he smiled real big and he said, praise the Lord. She's in heaven. No big deal. I was young in my faith. I thought, that's weird. I'm old in my faith. That's weird. That's weird. No. There's a wonderful book by a man named Walter Stoff written called Lament for a Son. It's a powerful book. His son was 25. The dad was 51. His son was climbing mountains in Italy. He fell to his death. And he just wrote this powerful book. He was just journaling regarding the death of his son. And, and he's a believer, a strong believer, good theologian. And he talked about some of the things that people would say to him who were well-meaning Christians. And he said, several people said to me, isn't it wonderful he's in the arms of Jesus? And he said, I want to scream in their face, I don't want him in the arms of Jesus. I want him in my arms. That's grief. So I, I just say, Christian mysticism, ultra-mysticism, unbiblical mysticism, be very careful. When somebody loses a loved one and you know them, just sit with them, take them coffee, pray with them when they want to pray, listen to their shrieks when they want to shriek, just be there. So to me, the middle point is we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Yes, it hurts. We, we, we grieve. We, we grieve really not the loved one necessarily. But let me tell you, once you're in heaven for a nanosecond, you would not come back to the earth if your team was on their 15th straight World Series championship. No way, man. Well, you just inherited $5 billion. No way, man. There's no way. So, so we, we grieve the separation. We grieve our loss. But there were the Lord men. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Because they're with the Lord. And, and Paul says, encourage each other with these words. Build up each other with these words. Walk with each other with these words. In the next verse. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died or fallen asleep in him. We believe. The word for believe, a little definition, to, to think something is true and therefore worth being trusted. Basic definition. To think something is true and therefore worth being trusted. I, 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 lo I love this. We believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that, that we will be with him forever. We believe that, some, that this is true and therefore it is worth being trusted. And we believe because that is true that we'll be with him forever. We believe. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's so powerful to me. See, I, that's why when we do the Apostles' Creed here, I just want to shout, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, whatever that means. He rose victorious over death. 
And he says, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I believe. See, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Isn't it amazing that every Lord's Day, many churches all over the world talk about a thug? Pontius Pilate. Why did the church put Pontius Pilate in there? Here's why I believe they did that. They want to say, this is a historical faith. This isn't some type of experience of a Jesus reality. This is grounded in history. (laughs) We believe it's true, therefore it can be trusted we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we believe that we'll be with him forever. It, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's just powerful. <sighs> 31 years ago, the first movie came out and a series of movies that I have really enjoyed. I, I didn't 31 years, the first Indiana Jones movie came out. 31 years. Wow. In one of the movies, I think it was the Temple of Doom, I'm not sure. I should have looked it up. Indiana Jones is going across this bridge. And so he comes to this deep ravine, hundreds of feet. And he's standing on it. And the instructions say, just step on the bridge. There's no bridge you can see. And so he just steps and magically the bridge appears. And I've read articles about that's what it's like to trust Jesus. Baloney. Baloney. There's a certain aspect of the walk of faith where somebody says, Lord, I don't fully understand this, but you command it and I'm going to do it. I understand. But, but when it comes to saving faith, it is not, I hope it's true. You say, I believe, Paul says, 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. 500 men, not counting women and children. He says, go, he says, both of them, most of them are still alive. Go and talk to them. See, it's, it's true, therefore it should be trusted. It's not a jump in the dark. It's not a leap into the unknowing is based on the rugged reality of who Jesus is. That's why I love this. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. We, we believe that he died and rose again. It happened. So we believe, therefore, we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, have you, have you trusted Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? That there's no way to be made right with God except through the cross? Remember singing about it. Thanks be to God for the music. It's not based on some conjecture or fatuous hope like this dear man. This is a festival called Tai Pusom. It's a Hindu festival. And that's a real rod through his cheek. That's real fish hooks tied to real oranges in his skin. 
And once a year, if you've made a, a pledge to the God who might be and who's in some type of myth- mythological framework, you go through this ritual to, to be absolved of your sin and or to repay what the gods have done for you. Say, God, if you let me get in Shiva, Vishnu, whatever, let me get into graduate school, then I'll do Tai Pusam. I remember going to that festival in Singapore and talking to young Hindus and saying, you know, I don't have to go through this because Jesus, who is God, has already done this for me. He's already bore my sin in his body. It's just a, it's, it's a fatuous hope based upon... We believe. We, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It happened. And so we believe that Jesus will bring with him and those who have died and, and will be with him forever. We believe. It's not this. It's, 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 it's reasonable. It, it happened. See, I... I want us to think. I want us to think biblically. I was reading recently about and, uh, the elderly of America. A little, a brief journal entry, and it talked about a, a man who's 83, raised in a upper Midwest church background, and he's now in this retirement village. And he was interviewed, and this is what he says. Now listen to this. I'm very active in a local church. We try to go every Sunday. He's 83. He and his wife are old. They, they still go, you know. But I'm not a particularly strong believer in the stuff that's associated with what churches say they're about, the afterlife kinds of questions and that sort of thing. There's one thing, though, that is important to me, and that's the reason I participate. It's the sense of community that can come from people who also are concerned about the world. And you can get that at Lowe's. Come on. He's 83. You'd think you'd be thinking about the afterlife. I mean, you're 83, pal. Look at any life insurance chart. You're knocking on the door. You're having, your theme should be every morning you wake up and say, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. That's you. That's your zip code. I was reading Time Magazine years ago about, about uh, interviewing people about faith. And one person who was in New York City said, I go to the Episcopal Church. I don't believe anything they teach, but I love the way they light candles. It makes me feel good. And I thought, go to Yankee Candle, pal. You know, give me a break. You know, if we're, if we're not about something, if we're not about something and believing something, then why be here? Why bother? Good grief. Make your nachos and get ready for the 8 o'clock pitch tonight. But we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe we'll be with him forever. We trust him. That, that, that's, that's who we are. So you think. This is, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. A guy named Harry Blamires. This is a Christian book. I read this book in seminary. I'm rereading that. It's a phenomenal book. Written in 1963. Okay, 63. It says, The mental secularization of Christians means that nowadays we meet only for worship as worshiping beings and as moral beings, but not as thinking beings. You say, well, is it better or worse since 63? Yes. In certain segments, I think it's probably better. But, but it still has a strong... We, we think. 
Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See? And then later in the book he says this, about page 55 or so. He said, to, to think secularly, and he admires secular thinkers, is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. But to think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. That is powerful. We think. We think. See, we live differently because... We're eternal, eternal destinies. First John chapter 3 says this. Everybody who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Everybody has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is is pure. Verse 2 starts off by saying, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. To purify yourself means that you're set apart for the purposes of God. When we think purifies yourselves, it means you don't cuss or that's part of it but really it's the broader purposes you're, you're set apart you're a different person you think differently you live differently you 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 go forward in life differently i was reading hosea the other day in the old testament hosea 7 uh, 8 and 9 listen to these these verses it says ephraim or, or israel mixes with the nations ephraim is a flat cake not turned over. In other words, burnt on one side, raw on the other, no good for anybody. Why? Verse 8, foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize. And I just thought, you know, Lord, how in the world do we live in the world and, and exist in the world and love in the world without being consumed by the things that we hear every day. I, I don't know, except to stay here and to stay in community and to stay on our knees and to say, listen, to, say to one another, say, you know, eternity awaits. This week, three times this week, say to some brother, sister in the Lord or somebody, you know, really, eternity awaits. I cannot stay up late to watch ball games. I can't. I was with some guys my age the other day and we were talking about that a late night for us is 9, 30, 10 o'clock. That's really late for us. It's true because you wake up at 4, 30 or 5. You say you've got to get in bed. So I, I was not able to see the NBA finals, which really grieves my heart and cheers my wife's heart. But the, the day after the championship game, when the, the Heat won, I saw an ESPN thing. I was getting dressed and the guy said, now... LeBron James has the monkey off of his back. He's the star of the Heat. He has won an NBA championship. What athlete now in the NBA has the monkey on his back to win an NBA championship? And here's a quote to validate his career as a professional athlete. I just want to say, give me a break. Validate his career? 
a lot of guys. I mean, I, and I wish I'd ask one of these people, Dwight Howard or Kevin Durant, wish, do you think you have to win an NBA championship to validate your career? I wish somebody who was a Christ follower would say, listen, I love this game. I make millions of dollars playing this game, which I think is a great way to live, by the way. <laughs> and, but, but he said, and, and, and I play hard, I practice hard, I work hard, I work in the offseason hard. But winning an NBA championship doesn't validate my existence as a person. That's been validated because I am made in the image of God. And Christ died for me. How do you you live... with power. I, I, I think you have to have this supernatural perspective. Or I, I can't get over this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know, how do you live in the area of stewardship with your time and your money and your giftedness? Listen, verse 17, I'll read this. But you, man of God, flee from all this immorality, impurity, whatever. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You, you fight the good fight of faith. You take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many people. Verse 17. And, and now command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us for everything for our enjoyment. God is so good. He gives us so much. Just command them. To do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. One reason you give and you serve and you care and you love is, is that there is a glorious day coming when you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You're laying up a firm foundation for the coming age. See, that, that's it. It's, it's, it's keeping eternity squarely focused before our eyes. Now, very quickly, five more minutes, just hang in there, five, very quickly. The application is this. We live with grace, dignity, and hope. The best is yet to be. The outward man is perishing, like Paul says, yes, but the best is yet to be. I am enthralled with a poem by a guy named Dylan Thomas, who died at age 39 of probably alcohol poisoning. His wife who had endured his immoralities, said, my husband and I worship at the altar of alcohol. That's who we are. And so this incredibly brilliant, gifted man died, 39. And he, he wrote a poem. And it's, it's interpreted in numerous ways. It's a poem about his father dying, maybe. But listen, just... Two brief stanzas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. To me, he said, shake your fist in the face of God. Second stanza. The wise men at their end know dark is right because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Now, what he's saying there, I think, is that, is that wise men who die, 
realize that their words, no matter how articulate and academically sound they are, fort no lightning. In other words, didn't really make a big difference. Therefore, do not go gentle in that good night. You shake your fist in the face of God. I, I think of that compared to the countless biblical statements about being gracious and humble and caring and the outward man perishing but being renewed day by day and the hope of heaven and the best is yet to be and, and there's an eternity to look forward to. And I think, you know, one, one thing, listen, one thing we should do as we get old and die is to die with grace and dignity and laughter and joy because Jesus is Lord. Because we believe Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, we believe he will be forever with him in glory. So, three broad statements. Number one, we should keep reminding each other of this thing. Second Peter 1, Peter says, you know, he says, guys, I'm always preaching the same stuff to you so you won't forget it. I need people in my life who are saying, you know, glory awaits. Go and eat the bran muffins, but one day you'll die. Go ahead and work out. It's good. You're going to die. Number two, stay grounded. Verse I want to look at. Basically, look at the last part. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Stay grounded. Don't be overwhelmed by life or grief but be overcomers. See, overcomers. I, I uh, reading parts of a book and um, it's entitled a world, of Curi- a world of Curiosities by, by an attorney on, on, on trivia and how fun trivia is. And I, I can become a trivia nut. I think I'll be real careful. And this is what it says in part. It says everything fascinates him. It says, but, but part of the pleasure of trivia is that the opportunity it affords us to revel in the very ephemerality, the ephemeral nature, that makes the information trivial in the first place. That's why bar rooms have trivia nights. I went out to eat at a restaurant the other night and it was trivia night. And they were playing excerpts of songs and were trying to guess and I didn't, I didn't know any of them. But I thought, I mean, it's just... Everybody's just excited. I thought, wow. Uh-oh. They don't do that at Moe's. So I didn't know. Um, th- that's why bar rooms have trivia nights and why Jeopardy has thrived on television for decades. Chasing after factual outliers, the ones that don't bind themselves to a larger narrative can be plenty of fun and a diversion that leaves us refreshed. And I just thought, you know, that's okay, but I need to pour into my life truths that bind themselves to the narrative whose name is Jesus. It's fine to be interested, but I've got to ground, I've got to know certain things and let them be the fixed northern star in my life. And the third thing is just expectation. When you look at this and think about glory awaits, it makes us people who Understand that this life is, is glorious, but it's filled with battles and blessings. This life will never be perfect. And sometimes I think we demand way too much of people or way too little. It, it, it's, we're all over the place. 
But we believe that Jesus died and rose again and that glory awaits. When I was, a few years ago, there was a wonderful uh, radio broadcast called The Prairie Home Companion. And it's about a mythical city in Minnesota that was established by some Unitarian missionaries, supposedly, who won the Native Americans over by teaching them liturgical dance. <laughs> it's, just, it's really good stuff. It's very funny. And so um, and they had a, the town crest said in Latin, we're here, dot, 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 where are we? That was the town crest. But he, this is the way the show began. Lake Wobegon, a little town that time forgot and the decades cannot improve. And then this is the byline. Where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. My child is a student of the month at the school. Whatever. Now, guys will never get to Lake Wobegon until we go to heaven. This world will be filled with pain and joy. But you can't go to Lake Wobegon. You can't get back into Eden. Just can't. Thorns and thistles will be part of our experience every day. No seams, mosquitoes every day. But we believe that Jesus died and rose again and will be with him forever. Encourage each other with those words. Lord, thank you for the day and for the privilege of study and thinking and pondering your, your truth. And I pray that we'd be people who do think. I, I pray that we as a church would really be grounded in Scripture and that we would be men and women who uh, have our minds saturated with who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you take the Word of God and just inflame our hearts. Inflame our hearts, Lord. Um, so, so teach us, Lord. But thank you that um, we can say with the Apostle Paul, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, we believe he will bring us to him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.